This message was recorded February 11, 2024. The speaker is David Simpson. Now please take your Bible and turn to Isaiah, and we're in chapter 52. Isaiah is a wonderful, wonderful study, and we have right at the doorstep of the heart of Isaiah, the heart of the Old Testament, in many ways the heart of the whole Bible, because we're going to stop at least, I probably won't get this far, but uh, our text is actually the first 12 verses. Verse 13 You'll look at verse 13. It begins what we call Isaiah 53. So when we study it, Lord willing, next week, beginning from verse 13 down through verse 12 of what we call Isaiah 53 should be thought of as one whole unit of study. So we'll get there, and I'm excited to get to Isaiah 53, and we'll slow down. We've moved a little a little quickly going through here, but we'll slow down and work our way slowly through these verses. Some of you remember, some of you have notes from a long time ago, but it's been 20 years or so, at least, I think, uh, that we studied, but we will we'll look forward to doing it again. But today I want to talk with you about one main idea here that we have in the first part of Isaiah 52. So if you'll look in verse number one, let's read two or three verses just to get our text in, in our eyes. He said in verse number one, Awake, awake, put on strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come unto thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust, arise, and sit down, O Jerusalem, loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith the Lord, ye have sold yourselves for naught, you shall be redeemed without money. Okay, I'm going to stop there. I want us to focus on the name that we have here in the beginning, and that is the name Zion. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. The name originated the name Zion. We don't really know where. We don't know the exact meaning of it, where it uh, came from. But the first time that it's known to be mentioned was about 400 years before David, about 1400 B.C. And uh, it's from a source outside of the Bible. But the name Zion became prominent with David David lived about a thousand years before Christ, a thousand B.C. And it says in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 7 that David took the stronghold of Zion. David was running from his life, from his son and from armies. And he came to the edge of Jerusalem and he set up a camp. Well, that edge of Jerusalem on the south side there's a rock formation that is thought to be the place where David was, and it became known as Zion, or they called it Zion. So that's sort of the history behind it. Uh, not only 300 years later, but in the Psalms, we will also see that Zion becomes a picture and a type, and that picture and the type is of the church. So 300 years later, when Isaiah writes about 700, I've just given you about, I'm not trying to be exact, about 700 years 
The name Zion is typical or a type or symbolic of the church. The church is actually given three names. If you'll look here, it's called Zion. And then the church is called Jerusalem. And then if you'll look down to verse number nine, they're called my people down toward the end. For the Lord hath comforted his people, not my people, but his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. Well, this Jerusalem, this Zion and his people, that is all foretelling about the church. So if you don't believe me, I'm going to show you in the New Testament. Hold your place, but I want you to go with me to the book of Hebrews. I want you to see this rather than me just telling you. I want you to go to Hebrews, please, in chapter 12. Hebrews 12. I want you to find verse 22. In verse 22 of Hebrews 12, this is a reference back to this same meaning. But you are come unto Mount Zion. So it says Zion, but it's Zion. Unto the city of the living God. So not the city where it's overthrown, not the city where it's filled with idols, not the city where it's filled with false religion, but the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly Jerusalem. So you know that he's talking about something that is symbolic, something that is, that is typical for us to see because it is heavenly Jerusalem, not earthly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, that is God's guardians over things, then verse 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. So when he talks about Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, he's talking about the church, the church of the firstborn, which is a way of referring to Christ, who was the firstborn out of death, is what, he, is, what is meant by that. So I wanted you to see that, to know that I'm not just making this up, that here in Isaiah 52, when he talks about Zion and Jerusalem and his people, he's talking about the church. We know that God is gracious to Zion because in Psalm 102 and verse 13, it says, have mercy on Zion. We're also told that God dwells in Zion. In Psalm 76 and 2 in Salem, that would be Jerusalem. And the name Salem means peace. So Jerusalem is, means a city of peace. Of course, it's been anything but a city of peace. Don't you think it's of interest how that it's called a city of peace? But we know now, looking back on it, that history tells us it's a city of anything but peace. But it is a place of peace because it is the church. And that's the message, the gospel of peace. So what I want to do is to just see a handful of things. I'm not going to try to go to verse by verse through this. I've done this a lot in Isaiah. But I want to talk with you about Zion. And I have a handful of things here. I may not get very far. But I want to talk with you first about, of all about God's election of Zion. Because we are told in Psalm 132, rather, in verse 13, that the Lord has chosen Zion. You might want to write it down, go back and look for yourself. But the Lord has chosen Zion. So election and Zion go together. Now I want you to go back with me to the place of our reading. And here in the first chapter of Isaiah, and I want you to look at verse number 8. We're going to look at 8 and 9. In verse 8 it says, 
chapter 1, Isaiah, and the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Both of these are a picture of the same thing. It's two different gardens that are mentioned here. One is a vineyard, the other is a garden of, vine of cucumbers, but they are one thing. There's a parallel. But then you also have here a cottage and a lodge, and they are the same. So those two go together. So here's the way it worked. They would have a garden, but the gardener would build a little shack in the middle, and it would be called a lodge or a cottage, but it'd just be a little building. And the overseer of the garden would stay there all the time. And he was watching for birds to shoo them away. They didn't know about scarecrows in that day. So they would shoo away the birds. Or if there was any thief that would come to steal their cucumbers, they could fight off those thieves. So it was there to watch after them. But when the fall came and they gathered all of their cucumbers and they got all of their peppers and all of their onions and the green beans were gone, and there was nothing left but vines, and then that lonely cottage sitting in the middle. Nobody there to oversee it, nobody to watch after it, and so that lodge would little by little deteriorate. Well, this, he says, is a picture of Judah and Israel. When he talks about Judah and Israel earlier, Isaiah says he's writing to them, Israel is the northern kingdom, Judah is the southern kingdom, he was in the southern kingdom, which is Judah, but he's writing about both. So now what is said is that it's in the middle of the vast of humanity, and it's all alone. There's nothing to protect it, nothing to oversee it. It's like that cottage, and there's nothing to protect it whatsoever. Now when you step into verse number 9, you begin with this little five-letter word, accept. So, accept. So it's like the word but or the word therefore. So accept. So they would all be gone. The nation would all be wiped out like the garden, empty. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. Not a large remnant, not a lot of people, but a few people. A very small remnant. And if the Lord did not keep a very small remnant, what does he say? We should have been as Sodom and Gomorrah that God destroyed in total. So that Sodom and Gomorrah became what we call the salt sea. And so beneath all of that salty water are these two cities. They're gone. And he said, had it not been that the Lord would kept a few people, it would have been gone. Now, I want you to see that word remnant in the New Testament. Don't lose your place in Isaiah, but I want you to go with me to the New Testament. And some of you are already ahead of me, of course, but I want you to look in Romans, in Romans, and I want you to go to chapter 11, and we'll see something there about a remnant. I want you to look in verse number one. I say then, hath God cast away his people? Well, you first of all have to know who his people are. That's what Paul's talking about. 11.1 Romans. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite. That's his, by birth, of the seed of Abraham. So he makes it very pointed that I am not one of those who is a half-breed 
from the Babylonian captivity. My bloodline, he said, goes all the way back to Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So it was very important thing, very prideful thing for them to have a line that they could trace back. And then in verse 2, God hath not cast away his people, not the ones which he foreknew. So you have to understand that. It's, he's talking about not everybody, but the ones which he foreknew. Well, his foreknowledge and his foreordination and his predestination, that's one thing. So to foreknow is to foreordain. To foreordain is to predestinate. God hath not cast away his, his people the ones which he foreknew. Would you not or do you not know what the scripture said in Elijah to Elijah? How he hath intercession to God against Israel saying, so here he is moaning and uh, crying because there are so few. Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars and I am left alone and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto Elijah? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Now that phrase right there, that sentence gives encouragement to me because if in that small place, if there were 7,000 and Elijah didn't know them, then surely in a world as big as ours, God has people who he has reserved for himself that we don't know. We want to know them, but we don't know them. But I'm still talking about this idea of the remnant, so press on then to verse 5. So then, at this present time also there is a remnant. Let me stop right there. What is a remnant? Well, have you ever gone to a carpet store? And if you're going to buy a carpet, you don't buy the whole roll. You may think you do, but you don't. They have it on a big roll, and they will cut off a part of it, and that becomes the remnant. And then they will take it to your house or to your business or wherever you're putting that down. And they'll cut pieces off of what they've brought to you. And what is left is a remnant. So the big part went down, but the little parts, that's the remnant. So he says to them, even at this present time, there is a remnant, a small number cut off of the larger number, according to the election of grace. Now, election and cutting off this remnant, that's the same thing. A remnant is actually a definition, if you think of it, of election. And it is a remnant of grace. It's of grace that God chose. It's of grace that God elected a people. Say, I don't like a God like that. You can say, I don't want him to be that way. But nevertheless, that is the God of the Bible and the God of this world. And it's the God whom we worship. And then he uses that to launch into an explanation of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of work. So it's not of something you do or of something you decide. It, it has nothing to do with what you do. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. And if it be of work, then it is no more of grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. If you try to put oil in your radiator, how will that work for you? If you try to put water in your oil pan, how will that work for you? Not so good, right? You have to keep the oil and the water separated. They both are important. They both have a place, but not mixed together. 
The law has a place in that it reveals sin to us. Grace has a place in because it saves us. Both are important. Sin needs to be shown to us. Grace is what is required to save us, but you cannot mix them together. You mix them together, grace is no more grace, and law and works is no more law and works. You cannot mix them together. So that's the first thing. But then once you turn with me over to Ephesians, I'll say a few little things here about Ephesians. Look in the first chapter, please. In verse number three, praise or blessed. Verse three goes all the way to the end of verse 14. There's one long sentence. And so praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And what's the first blessing that he mentions. I didn't make it up. Verse number four, according as he hath chosen. That's the first blessing that he mentions, is that God has chosen or God has elected. What does the word chosen or the word elect mean? Well, in the original language, the Greek word is electos, or eklego, if it's in the verb, and it's made of two words. It means out, ek means out, ek, Lego means to speak, so it's to speak out or to call out. So it's to call out a smaller number from a larger number. We practice election all the time. You'll decide today, well, I want pizza. Or you might decide, no, I want to have a salad. Or you might decide, I'd like to have a Coke or I want to have tea. You practice election all the time. We all do. You can't get away from it. In our way of living, we have lots of choices. We have more choices than most people of the world have ever even thought about having. And we are practicing election all the time. Well, that's the meaning of the word. And so let me say a few things to you about what he says about this election that is here. First of all, who is the one who who did the choosing or the electing? According as he, and that is God, blessed be God, because, and that word according means because, because he has chosen. So it's God who did the choosing. It's altogether of God that he is the one who did that. And so that's why he pronounces this blessing. And then a second thing that is here that you can't really just see, he chose for himself because the verb here for he hath chosen That is a middle voice, which means that he chose for himself. You could look at it as a passive because the passive in the middle look the same. But most, and I think that this is intended to be a middle, which he did this for himself. And he did this because of his glory. It's a reference to this glory. If you look down to verse 6, it says, To the praise of the glory of his grace. In verse 7, down toward the end of that, it says, according to the riches of his grace. And then one more time in verse number 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory. So election and predestination and these other things that he mentions here, they're not for us. They're really for him. They're really for his glory, not for our glory, but for his glory. And his alone. So that's why it is a middle voice. So God chose, God chose for himself. The third thing is that God chose a people. He hath chosen us. Now, some people want to say that God chose a plan. 
God chose a way. Well, of course he chose the way. I mean, only an idiot would say something different than that. Of course he chose the way. But that isn't what this says. It says he chose us. And it doesn't have a preceding noun to go before it, then to use this personal pronoun us. But he's talking about God's chosen people. Us, we who are believers, we who are His. God has chosen us. He's chosen people, not a way, not a plan, but us, Jews and Gentiles. He elected people. The next thing is that He chose us in Him, and that means in Christ. God chose in Him, that's in Christ, spherically. In Him means in the sphere of Christ, the way they would look at it. Before the foundation of the world, in eternity, was chosen in Christ. But you can't separate that from his glorious person and his finished and saving work upon earth. Chosen in him. Election is in Christ, not outside of Christ. So God has chosen. God has chosen for himself. God has chosen a people. God has chosen in Christ. And then one more thing I would say, and that is God elected eternally. God elected eternally, and I know that because before the foundation of the world. So if God did all of the choosing, He did it for Himself, He chose people, and He did it before the foundation of the world. He did it without human will, without human works. And I know the way Arminians look at this, though there's no foundation for it, they say He chose because He knew that you would accept Him. He knew that you would give your heart to Him. He knew that you would let Him come into your life. He knew what you would do. Well, of course He knew what you would do. But that has nothing to do with this. I mean, let's let the words say what they say. God, in Christ, has chosen a people eternally before the foundation of the world. Then I want you to go back with me to Romans 9. I'm going to try to, again, support the idea that it is not based on what a person would do. Go back to Romans 9, and Paul explains that. In Romans 9, Paul begins to use an example, or gives examples, I should say, and uses example here of Abraham and Sarah, of Isaac and Ishmael, and then here of, of Jacob and Esau, Look what it says in verse 11. For the children being not yet born, neither having done good or evil. If they hadn't done good or evil, they hadn't decided good or evil. Because in order to do, you've got to decide. You don't don't ever do anything unless you decide to do it, right? So they hadn't decided and they hadn't done good or evil. Had nothing to do with what they would do or with what they would decide. But that, in order that, the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. Not works, but of him who calleth. So it is altogether of God. It is God who does that. And Paul launches into this, into a discussion about God's justice. And in verse 14, right in the middle of that verse... What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness? That word unrighteousness is better translated unjust. Is there injustice with God? The word righteous and the word justice, it's the same word. This is better understood as justice. Is there 
injustice with God. What is it the first thing people say who don't believe or don't want to believe in election? What do they say? They say, well, that's not fair. Not fair for God to choose some and not to choose others. Well, Paul heard these Jews say that. And so he said, what shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? Because he chose one brother and not another, one person and not another, God forbid. No way in this world that God is less than totally just. So the first thing to see about this truth of Zion is that Zion is chosen. Why don't you go back with me to Isaiah 52? Uh, they're the object of God's calling. That's why you have the words awake, awake. Here, and then they are the object of God's calling and election together. They are the, also the object of God's redemption. That's why it says at the end of verse 3, redeemed without money. So if you don't have any money, you don't have anything to bring. Because in order to buy a ransom, you need money. But you don't have any money. So this is a salvation without any contribution from the sinner. It's without any kind of of money whatsoever. And then it, God calls us to his sovereignty in verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of them that bringeth good tidings, that publishes peace, brings good tidings of good, and publishes salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. If you don't preach God's sovereignty, don't believe in God's sovereignty, just don't preach. Don't try to say you believe in God because the only way to believe in God as he is, is to believe that thy God reigneth. And in 1 Corinthians 15 and 25, Paul said he must reign. So God is a reigning God. Let me talk about one more thing and then I'll stop. And that is that Zion is the object of God's salvation. Look down here to verse 12, verse number 12. And just look at the last phrase in verse 12. And the God of Israel will be your reward. Some of you have re-reward. Now why would they put a re-reward or why would they shorten this to just reward? Well, because this word is a word that actually means a rear guard. A rear guard. I mean, Isaiah 52 and 12, its word means a rear guard. So they had a guard, they had guards up front, then you'd have your party in between, and then there would be a rear guard. So what he's talking about is your salvation, your deliverance. God is going to deliver you from beginning to end. All the way through, the Lord is going to deliver you. Look back with me to Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 14. We went over this verse, of course, when we studied chapter 8. But in verse 14, he shall be for a sanctuary and for a stone of stumbling and a rock of fence to both houses of Israel, and a gin and snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, where do we find this verse in other places? Well, we find it in Romans 9.33. We also find it in Hebrews 11.16. And then the verses we read a few moments ago in chapter 12 of Hebrews and 22 and 23. Look one more place. Go with me to the New Testament and find 1 Peter. I'm not far from stopping, so I'm going to make it. Look in 1 Peter and look in chapter 2. So Hebrews, James, and Peter. 
Hebrews, James, Peter. And Peter, of course, was right there with the Lord. He knew him as well as anyone. He was the one who finally gave his life. And as far as we know, tradition says he was crucified upside down, saying, I'm not worthy to be crucified as my Lord. So they crucified him upside down. But then look with me, please, in the second chapter of 1 Peter, and look in verse number 6. Wherefore, it also is contained in the Scripture, or written in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. He that believeth on him shall not be confounded or disappointed in any way. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. So what's that mean? They're looking for a cornerstone, the best one. They looked at this stone, no. Looked at that stone, no. Another stone, no. Finally, when they came to the right stone, that's Christ. But the ones that they disallowed in verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Verse number 9. But you're a chosen generation, elected generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into light. Let us take encouragement and let us know that, yes, we live in a dark day. We live in a day full of trouble and we live in a day of much, much religious ignorance. Peter said of Christ that he was disallowed of men, but chosen of God. He said of the elect, you are a chosen generation. And John referred to the church as the elect lady. The scriptures say Jesus saved God's elect in union with his work at the cross. So we rest because he earned righteousness. God gladly accepted and freely reckoned or imputed that righteousness to the account of his people. We know that is redemption and forgiveness and justification in behalf of all that the Father gave to the Son. That is his elect. And we rest in that, that truth in Christ.